Hello, you're listening to the Cambridge American History Seminar podcast. This is the first episode of 2019, the first of Lent term, and the ninth overall episode in our series of brief conversations with academics who come to present at our weekly seminar. Thanks for sticking with us, and we've missed you. I'm Lewis DeFreitz, I'm a PhD student at Sydney Sussex College here, and I'm delighted uh, to be speaking today to Professor Naomi Lamoureux, who is the visiting Pitt Professor of American History and Institutions here at the University of Cambridge, and is also the Stanley B. Rezor Professor of Economics and History at Yale University. Naomi is a historian and economist with a focus on American business, banking and finance. She has published an enormous amount of books, uh, journal articles and working papers, which as a historian who doesn't really work in economics is a format that I find exciting and absolutely terrifying. Uh, so her second book, Insider Lending, Banks, Personal Connections and Economic Development in Industrial New England, which was published in 1996, was awarded the Alice Hansen Jones Prize for Outstanding Book in North American Economic History by the Economic History Association. More recently, Naomi has published in a variety of journals, uh, like writing broadly on corporate governance and civil society in the US and sometimes in the UK, and will soon be publishing a co-edited volume of Ian Shapiro on the Bretton Woods Agreements in June of this coming year. Naomi, it sounds like you've got a lot of work to be getting on with, so... uh, I especially appreciate you taking the time to talk to me today. So we're going to be talking a bit about your paper, a bit about your ongoing work, and some of your wider experiences as a historian and an economist, I suppose. So uh, the paper you've given to the American History Seminar is titled Monopolies in US History, from Standard Oil to Google. Uh, I've been lucky enough to read it already as a pre-circulated paper, but could you tell the listeners at home a little bit more about it? Yes, this paper was, uh, is a work of synthesis, not of original research, and it's targeted uh, at the Journal of Economic Perspectives. The editors came to me with the topic and suggested I write on it. So uh, it is an attempt to, I, well, I guess the editors were, uh, chose to have a paper on this topic because of all the concern these days about the rights of uh, enterprises, tech, tech giants like Google and Amazon that have a tremendous amount of market power and there are rising concerns in the uh, in American society, actually in European society and British society about these monopolies and they wanted to have an issue that had several uh, articles about monopoly and also put this in historical perspective. So that's what, what I uh, set out to do in this paper. And uh, one of the important contributions of the paper is to remind people that concerns about, about market power have always been much broader than the current orthodoxy in, in uh, antitrust circles. So mm-hmm. the orthodox antitrust policy nowadays uh, is basically if consumers, if large firms are benefiting consumers, then we should, should leave them alone. Uh, so the, so the American antitrust authorities have not gone after Google or Amazon or uh, any of those other large firms because consumers are clearly benefiting from the, uh, their innovative products. Uh, but these firms are also engaging in anti-competitive practices, which other authorities, for example, the EU, EU's competition commissioner have singled out for attention. Mm-hmm. So uh, so I wanted to think about uh, how we got to this stage where uh, historically we had had a, a sense of uh, that there were broad concerns from big, bigness, 
but now we didn't seem to be able to, to move against them. So one of the aims of the paper is to think about that, that yeah. problem. Okay. And so you talk about some of the historical precedents and right. especially in American history, um, yeah, reactions to monopoly and bigness, as you say. Uh, could you talk about a couple of the case studies that you talk about in the paper? Right. So I, I start uh, the paper with the Standard Oil, mm. uh, the rise of the Standard Oil Trust, and then have and and have a second uh, long discussion of the meat packers uh, that uh, rose to prominence in the late nineteenth, early twentieth century, about the same time as as the rise of the Standard Oil Trust. And I focus on those two cases. A, a good chunk of the paper is devoted to those two cases, and I focus on them because they epitomize, in my view, the dilemmas of anti antitrust policy. And, uh, and how we should approach bigness. So Standard Oil was just a bad actor. Yeah. You know, it rose to dominance because it got rebates from railroads and used those rebates from railroads to squeeze competitors. And it outraged people because, uh, because, of, those, because of those practices. And so it was relatively easy, uh, at least conceptually, in, a, in an economic sense, to think about why Standard Oil uh, should be broken up, mm. as it ultimately was by the U.S. Supreme Court. There are legal difficulties, but the economic conceptual difficulties weren't, were not very serious. Yeah. Um, but the meatpackers pose these other problems, mm. uh, and those are the problems which are really still the problems that antitrust has to, has to face. So the meatpackers rose to prominence because they were incredibly innovative. Yeah. They found ways... Um, to slaughter cattle in the Midwest and ship the beef and refrigerated cars uh, to East Coast markets. And as a consequence of all the innovations they put together, they were able to make um, fresh meat, uh, 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 something that people, ordinary people could eat all the time, mm -hmm. right? It, it made it lots of seasonal commodity and lowered the price. But once the meatpackers did all that, uh, you know, they innovated, they gained market power through their innovations. They actually turned to anti-competitive practices to, to prevent price competition and to prevent new entry into the business. Yeah. And that's really the dilemma. That is, there's no... Teddy Roosevelt you know, talked about good trust and bad trust. And he met, you know, Standard Oil on the one hand and firms like the meatpackers uh, on the yeah. other hand. But in fact, there's no good trust and bad trust. The, the firms want to escape from, from the uh, effects of competition and lowering their profit margins, and they'll do anything to do that. And so the dilemma, the real antitrust dilemma is that large firms, will, even large firms that are very innovative, will do things to block competition yeah. that, that antitrust authorities should prevent. Hmm. And so I use the case studies for that purpose yeah. to, to sort of lay out this has always been the problem. And that was something that came through to me in both talking about the meatpacking and the more, like the modern day, like bigger firms, is that innovation, and you talk about innovation quite a lot, um, almost seems to enable anti-competitive practices being enacted later on down the line. Do you think that that relationship between innovation and like, yeah, new technology and exciting changes. Has that affected policy making in that regard as well? Uh, well, yes. Um, so, 
uh, in two different ways. Mm. Um, so at the time of the meatpacking, uh, when as meatpackers were increasingly resorting, increasingly resorting to uh, anti-competitive devices, you can watch uh, policymakers in the U.S. fumble to a set of towards a set of tools that will allow them to police the line between innovativeness and anti-competitive yeah. behavior. And it's actually quite a hard line to police. But you see them fumbling to a set of tools. And I think that those were you know, a remarkably good set of tools that they developed mm -hmm. uh, in, in the progressive era, and particularly with the passage of the Clinton Antitrust Act in 1914 and the Federal Trade Commission Act in 1914. So what the Clayton Act did is it, it allowed, it, it outlawed certain uh, practices. Mm. It just said, these are anti-competitive practices, you can't do it. For example, you can't have a tying contract. So I can't say to you that I'll sell you my product or let you sell my product so long as you don't deal with a competitor. Yeah. That's, that's an antitrust violation. Mm -hmm. And then the Federal Trade Commission Act set up a new commission um, the Federal Trade Commission, or the FTC as we call it for short, to police, to enforce that, uh, that uh, those, those prohibitions, and then also to define what unfair competition is, yeah. and, and, to, and then to tell firms you have to stop behaving in that way. And that's a hard line, and so, so there's pushback on, mm. on both sides of this. Um, so the second um, really important thing is sort of how, do we, how did we get to the place where antitrust authority is essentially toothless right, yeah. right now. And it's part of the consequences of that pushing back in, uh, in both directions. I think uh, that in the post-World War II period, antitrust authorities got too aggressive. Mm -hmm. And uh, they... they they pushed too hard in a way that arguably harmed the innovative character of the economy. Yeah. And you get a backlash against that, which then gets enormous support during the 1970s when, when uh, the U.S. economy is doing very poorly mm -hmm. and losing ground to foreign competitors. And people start in, in policy-making circles, so why are we attacking the most innovative firms in the U.S. economy when, when our firms are under, when our economy is suffering? Yeah. And so there's a backlash against that. And that's how we get on the wrong side of the, of the boundary. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And would you say that there's something, is there like a changing relationship in America generally towards like, yeah, these bigger companies and monopolies? Is there something that's like, historically contingent about it, or is there something, you know, linked to, you know, the institutions? I think it's, it's both, both, yeah. right? <laughs> <laughs> that, that is, the institutions themselves are a product of, uh, of, uh, of uh, contingent processes of fumbling mm -hmm. towards solutions to problems yeah. that society is facing. Right, okay. Um, I guess asking a bit more generally about this, because it was, this was a really interesting paper for me to read as someone who's not had much experience of economic history and you're writing both for I guess more broadly you're writing for both economists and for historians um, do you anticipate particular types of questions from either group of people and is it difficult kind of pitching this kind of work to economists on one hand and historians on the other 
So less difficult, I think, than you might expect. Hmm. Um, um, actually, the, the difficult pitch for me is that the first place I presented this paper, I just finished it, I wrote it here right. like in Cambridge last, last term. Okay. Uh, and I, I presented it for the first time in December in uh, Tel, at Tel Aviv University to a seminar called the Sappho Seminar in, um, in uh, ethics and law or law and ethics. Mm -hmm. and, and that was a very different audience because that audience was not particularly interested in, in the history Right. Uh, but was more interested in the current problems of bigness. And, and they were asking questions which linked it to the history, but all the questions were really about, mm. about bigness and current problems today. Last week I presented this to economic historians at LSE, and I felt that the questions were somewhat different from, from the ones I got yesterday at the Cambridge American yeah. History Seminar, but really... But really of a kind, that is, yeah. I, so I didn't realize, I really feel a pull. Now, okay. we'll see what the editors of the Journal of Economic Perspectives say. Sure. They may think this is too too much history, yeah. not enough economics. Mm, could never get enough history, in my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, I guess moving on uh, to speak a bit more broadly, how does this paper fit into your current work and your wider research? Right. So, um, okay. Step back. I'm old, and my dissertation was about the rise of large firms in the period when Standard Oil uh, yeah. came to dominance. So it's called the Great Merger Movement in American Business, and uh, I, I finished that book, uh, and I thought I'm going to work on other topics for a long time because otherwise I'll be trapped with a set of ideas that I had in my you know, twenties or thirties, and yeah. I want to, uh, I want to be free. So that book was uh, published in first published in nineteen eighty five. So now it's a bit later, several yeah. decades later, and I've been returning uh, it, it kind of uh, unexpectedly to these subjects, and now I feel like I've done enough different things and have mm -hmm. enough different perspectives that I can see. Um, how I'm thinking about these things. Um, so I, I have a related paper that I'm working on with Laura Phillips-Sawyer of the Harvard Business School, which is about, about antitrust and uh, state capacity and the, and the U.S. states versus the mm. federal government. Yeah. And so I've, I'm enjoying thinking about... This paper was sadly focused on the federal government because yeah. I didn't have enough space to do something uh, which would give adequate attention to the states. Yeah. But that is another work. Right, okay. That must be so interesting coming back to this like a couple of decades on and it's such a diff different political moment in terms of how it we're is. thinking about these. Yeah, it is. Yeah. So I wrote that merger movement book right at the time when the Chicago School, uh, you know, Robert Bork and the Chicago School yeah. were triumphing in the antitrust mm -hmm. arena, and now I'm coming back to this when when that view is being challenged, and yeah. that's really very exciting. Yeah, yeah, it must, yeah. 
So, um, what's a book or an article that you've read in the last 12 months or any recent time that's got you excited, either about your own work or about the state of the field more generally? So, uh, I, so, so that's a tough question. Mm. Um, I read a lot of things, but I, um, uh, you know, I, and I have a lot of projects. Uh, so, uh, I was thinking about that that question, and I think the. Uh, the article, um, surprisingly, that I have read recently that has most excited me and I most admired was an article I read for a very different project. I have too many projects. Yeah. <laughs> and this is a project, a book that I've been working on for a long time with Ruth Block, mm -hmm. uh, who was my colleague at UCLA and is, um, and it's on uh, the organizational roots of the right to privacy. Right. and. I, I've been working on what is the last chapter of the book, which is really looks at when privacy starts to become an issue in American society in the late 19th and early 20th mm -hmm. century, and then how, uh, how the various ideas and strains of concerns about privacy, and then how those feed into the way the Supreme Court's, U.S. Yeah. Supreme Court's decision in Griswold v. Connecticut, which first articulates a constitutional right to privacy, mm -hmm how that decision was interpreted. And so for that, I read this article by Robert Post, who was the dean of the Yale Law School until very recently. And it's called Federalism, Positive Law, and the Emergence of the American Administrative State. Uh, it's about prohibition in the Taft Court era. And it is a, it's, you know, a law review article. It's in the William & Mary uh, law Journal and or Law Review, and it was published in 2006. And law review articles are really long, so it's like halfway between a book and an article. Right, yeah. And it's just an incredibly stimulating article mm. about <coughs> the problems that that uh, the that prohibition posed for the court yeah. uh, in the 1920s. Uh, I'm deciding 1920s is sort of one of the key periods of change that I haven't paid enough attention sure. to. But this is just brilliant because um, because prohibition, so prohibition is a constitutional amendment, and many people on the court, even though they disagreed with prohibition, felt that their job was to uphold the Constitution, mm. and they had to enforce prohibition and had to give the state the tools that needed yeah. to enforce prohibition. Uh, and so you get this split on the court between the old line, some, some of the most conservative justices are the ones that are fighting invasions of privacy because they think the prohibition was a terrible overreach of government. Yeah. And you get this odd coalition of people like Brandeis mm. and uh, and uh, Taft, yeah. that is supporting these the, this overreaching federal power in this period of time, and I, I just found the article fascinating. fascinating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I guess we've got a couple of questions that we always ask to close out. Uh, what's the most interesting place that you've been for research? <laughs> so I'm a U.S. historian. You don't get to go to very interesting places to do yeah. research. Um, uh, so, uh, but I have, uh, you know, I do have a, a joint project with uh, people that involves, that I did bring me to uh, the Municipal Archives in Paris, which was 
fun. Mm. But I have to say that one, uh, I went to um, check out the papers of a, when I was working on my book, Insider Lending, I went to check out the papers of a small bank that was housed in the old banking structure from, which was a bank that had, that had uh, been created in the 1830s. And, and, uh, and it was a, kind of a local museum, but, but people had to go in and like throw a switch to turn on some electricity. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there wasn't much light and, yeah. and uh, it was very cold. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was probably one of the most interesting places because you actually got a feel for also what, what these institutions were like. It hadn't much changed yeah. from, from the 1830s, and mm. so you could see yeah. that, that how different banks were. And what they meant locally yeah. as well, I suppose. Yeah. As well. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, the final question, uh, what's your favorite album? My favorite album? Yeah. Well, I'm a, I'm a jazz person. Right. Um, so I think about all I listen to right now is Keith Jarrett. Mm -hmm. and, um, and there's a set of albums um, for that, were, that are Keith Jarrett at the Blue Note or something like that. Yeah. It's a whole collection. Yeah. And I listen to it over and over and over mm. and over and over and over again. It's fantastic. I, I love working at jazz as well. So, yeah. Well, I, I like many different kinds yeah. of jazz, but but really for my that's my comfort go to yeah. album. Yeah, it is a whole music in itself, isn't yeah. it? Jazz, it's like. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, well, Naomi Lamoro, thanks very much for joining me. And thank you, Lewis, for having me here. Well, thanks very much. Yeah.